Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Good day, Warbirders. Do you enjoy this podcast? If so, help me out a little bit. You know, you can give the podcast a good review, and you can like and share the Facebook page. You can also go to PayPal at WOWB17. Help support the podcast and keep it going, and then you'll keep enjoying these episodes. As you are aware, sometimes I like to divert from looking at a single aircraft type and dive into a more obscure element of warbird aviation. And that's what we're doing with this series. Yes, I said series. Once I started looking into World War II gliders, it turned into an incredibly rich topic that I think is pretty fascinating, and I think you'll be interested too. The big draw is that the idea of combat gliders is so foreign to the modern ear. I mean, if you think of gracefully soaring gliders or sailplanes, they seem to not belong at all anywhere near a battlefield. How did this even become a thing? How big were these operations anyway? And what the hell happened to all these gliders? Probably the thing that started the whole combat glider trend in World War II was the Versailles Treaty that ended World War I. In 1919, the treaty said this about German aviation. Open quotes. The manufacture and importation of aircraft parts of aircraft, engines for aircraft, and parts of engines for aircraft shall be forbidden in all German territory. Close quotes. Supposedly in the above is the loophole for gliders. I don't see it. In my mind, a glider is an aircraft, just one without an engine. I learned way back in my private pilot ground school that a aircraft was anything that could fly, including hot air balloons, dirigibles, airplanes, helicopters, and ornithopters. That's an aircraft that flies by flapping its wings like a bird. An airplane is a subset of aircraft that includes wings, like God intended for all flying things to have unlike helicopters, which are clearly from the devil. Like, I'm just joking. Relax. So, like the rabbit hole chasing fool I am, I looked up the Treaty of Versailles. And did you know that the damn thing is 1,168 pages long? No wonder Hitler was so upset with it. And he didn't have the ability to digitally search the PDF doc. The word airplane comes up 167 times, and in all kinds of contexts. And I finally gave it up, and we'll just have to accept that both sides considered gliders to be not a problem as regards the Versailles Treaty. So because of this, even more than anywhere else in the world, glider clubs began popping up all over Germany in the 1920s. If the Treaty of Versailles was intended to hobble future German aviation, it probably did the exact opposite. 
By forcing Germans to start flying in this very basic way, they encourage development in design and training literally from the ground up. There is not much more basic type of aviation than strapping oneself into what is basically a man-carrying kite and being bungee-launched for about a minute of flight. Starting from there, you learn some pretty fundamental things about design and piloting. So here's where I apologize for butchering any German words. I always try to do my best. Sometimes people send me messages on how I've uh, messed up, and that's okay. Continue to do that. I always try my best. So in 1924, the clubs began to coalesce around the Ron Rossitten Gesellschaft, RRG, or Ron Rissenten Society, which ended up providing a one-stop shop for the gliding enthusiast. It had workshops for building gliders and research teams for developing newer and better gliders. It ran flying schools in several locations and organized annual gliding competitions. It even had a meteorological study group which investigated thermals and ridge lift. In 1933, under the Nazis, the RRG was abolished and its functions were moved to the DFS, Deutsche Forschungsanstalt für Siegelflug, German Research Institute for Sailplane Flight. Glider training was moved into the realm of the Hitler Youth and began to be more openly for the purpose of training military pilots. The DFS continued its research work, and from there we get our first concepts of combat gliders. Although they built other trainers and prototypes before, the DFS-230 is the German combat glider that you would think of if you had ever thought about German combat gliders before. It was a high-wing monoplane, with the wings being braced to the fuselage via a light strut. It was constructed of a tube steel frame and had wooden wings. It was not designed to be reused, so was essentially disposable with a very light construction and very basic instruments. An airspeed indicator, an altimeter, a rate of climb indicator, a turn and bank indicator, and a compass. During takeoff, it used a landing gear that was dropped after achieving a positive rate of climb and landed later on a belly skid. It was flown by one pilot and would carry nine combat-equipped troops, plus 600 pounds of other equipment. Access and exiting the glider was done via one single side door. Although very basic, the 230 did have a machine gun mounted on the roof, just behind the pilot, and to be operated by the first passenger. Think of somebody shooting a machine gun from the sunroof of a car. Being on the small side, there was a wide variety of tow planes that could pull it into battle. A Ju-52 could actually tow two at the same time, and singles could be pulled by the HE-111, a Ju-87, or even the BF-110 or BF-109. A communications cable connected the two aircraft so the pilots could talk. 
but typically it was the Ju-52 which would be employed to tow the 230 into combat using a 130 foot cable or for bad weather a much shorter rigid bar with an articulated joint to the tow aircrafts could be used. The 230 had a great glide ratio Perhaps partly because of its pedigree of being designed by gliding enthusiasts, but also because it was envisioned as a commando-type weapon to be dropped far off and flown in silently for the maximum amount of surprise. The glider was to be released at an altitude of no more than 5,000 feet and 2-5 to five miles from its objective. At the last moment, once the landing was assured, it could dive in at an angle of 80 degrees, but then could touch down, deploy its parachute brake, and land within 60 feet of its target. Disposable status aside, it still looks like a sleek, tough little aircraft, and it literally took the world by storm when it was first employed to neutralize the supposedly impregnable Belgian fortress Eban Emal. This steel and concrete fortress was garrisoned by 1,200 troops and commanded two bridges over the Albert Canal. It was a bottleneck for the Blitzkrieg and would block the advance of the entire German 6th Army if not taken out. On May 10, 1940, nine DFS-230s carrying 78 men of the 7th Flieger Division swooped in, landed directly on the roof of the fortress and with shaped charge explosives and flamethrowers, they knocked out the armored gun positions, neutralizing the fortress, which surrendered the very next day. If the world hadn't noticed combat gliders before, they sure had now. A year later, about 100 DFS-230s were used in the airborne invasion of Crete. Although these had a harder go of it, as there was no surprise, and rather than being a commando-type raid, this was a massed invasion going up a fully aware and organized resistance. For this type of work, perhaps the 230 was a bit too small, not bringing in a critical mass of troops at the same time, and not able to bring in enough equipment to support them from the get-go. Although more than 1,600 230s were built, and they were used right up until the end of the war, they needed help. One of the things that really fascinates me about this era and this subject is that, unlike all other combat arms up until now, airborne infantry just didn't exist previously. Look, navies had existed forever, and you could argue that tanks were kind of an upgraded heavy cavalry. Of course, infantry was infantry. Although he might have been curious about the, what the rifle was, a Roman centurion would have recognized a fellow grunt by just looking at a backpack-wearing, helmeted member of the infantry on either side of the conflict. Even aerial spotting, fighting, and bombing had happened already in World War I. But airborne operations, by dropping parachute-wearing soldiers, this was totally new. Especially for the senior officers who had learned their trade in the static operations of the First World War, 
The promise of dropping an army behind the enemy's lines and hitting them in the rear was literally mouth-watering. The problem, of course, was that as soon as you dropped them there, they were automatically in the worst possible military situation there can be. They're lightly armed, and they're surrounded. So, although they would probably enjoy a short period of chaos from the surprise of their arrival, they would be vulnerable very quickly. Firstly, a paratrooper cannot carry much into battle beyond his own rifle, machine pistol, a knife, maybe a few grenades. You could drop heavier stuff in with parachuted canisters, but there was the time delay in getting to them, plus the wind could blow the stuff too far away and be out of reach just when you needed it badly. Plus, what you'd really like is some, you know, light artillery, maybe some transport vehicles so that you don't have to walk and run everywhere, or even some tanks. But bringing guns, trucks, and tanks in by air, that's just crazy talk, right? Nope. The Gotha GO-242 was designed as an upgrade to the DFS-230. It was a high-wing monoplane built of steel tubing covered with doped fabric and a square-section fuselage with twin tails. Between the tails were clamshell doors. It could carry 23 troops or about 8,000 pounds of cargo, including a Kubelwagen. So, yes, vehicles could be flown in. GO242s were towed by Henkel HE111s or Junkers JU52s. And sometimes the glider was equipped with a rocket assist takeoff device to help get the heavily loaded glider into the air. They also mounted up to four machine guns to defend themselves and shoot their way into battle. Gotha built 1,528 of them over the course of the war, and they saw service in the Mediterranean, North Africa, and the Aegean. Some were converted to powered aircraft by adding two 750 Nom Ron engines to forward extensions of the tail booms. With plans for the possible invasions of Britain, and eventually the Soviet Union, German forces realized that they were in a serious deficit of airborne cargo lift. The beloved Junkers Ju-52 just wasn't big enough, and there weren't enough of them. A crash program was required, and it was decided that cargo gliders could be the quickest and most cost-effective solution to the problem. Junkers went to work and came up with their Ju-322 Mammut, which is German for mammoth. And it sure was. It was a giant flying wing, 100 feet long with a 200-foot wingspan. It was supposed to be able to carry 140 troops or 44,000 pounds of cargo. Typical loads were supposed to be a Panzer IV tank, an 88mm gun, a half-track, or a self-propelled gun, including the attendant personnel, ammunition, fuel, and it would be armed with multiple machine guns. This thing was a monster. Check out the pictures on the World of Warbirds Facebook page to see. 
But the Mammut had lots of problems. Firstly, it was built of all wooden construction to save war-scarce materials. But Yunkers was unfamiliar with working with wood, and the two prototypes were found to be just not strong enough, and the floor was deformed when they tried to load it. When they finally towed it into the air using a four-engined Yunkers JU-90 transport, the glider was found to be very unstable in flight, so the program was cancelled after the first two prototypes. Messerschmitt's entry to the effort was the ME321 Gigant. Instead of going all wood, Messerschmitt used a frame of steel tubing with wooden spars and a doped fabric covering. It was properly named because it was a giant. It was almost 100 feet long with a wingspan of 180 feet and a height of 33 feet. Its nose was made up of two clamshell doors which could be opened, ramps dropped, and would allow vehicles to drive in or out. Its jettisonable main gear was actually made up of repurposed ME109 and JU90 wheels and it would land via a skid. The maiden flight of the ME321 took place on 25 February 1941. Carrying three tons of ballast and one test pilot, it was towed into the air again by a JU-90. Understandably, for such a big aircraft, the controls were found to be very heavy and sluggish, so it was decided to enlarge the cockpit to be able to add a co-pilot with dual controls to help out. Electric servo motors were also fitted to assist in moving the huge flaps. A braking parachute was also added, and they started building the first of an eventual 330 examples. You had to feel sorry for these designers and engineers as they stumbled forward trying to figure out what will work and what won't, with the demands of their own government superiors changing all the time. They were asked to build a giant cargo-carrying glider that could carry a whole bunch of troops or a tank, and so they did. But now it was found that even the four-engined JU-90 wasn't really powerful enough to pull it into the sky. So they decided to have a team of three ME-110s hitched together to pull one ME-321 to its destination. I love the name of the setup, which was called the Troika Schlepp, the trio of twin-engine fighters had to take off together in a V formation, towing the lumbering giant behind. As a pilot who has done just a little bit of formation flying, this makes me nervous just thinking about it. As this was crazy dangerous, Henkel designers came up with the idea of joining two HE-111 aircraft together adding a new center wing section with a fifth engine to boot. This was called the Henkel HE-111Z Zwilling, or Twins. Supposedly, it flew pretty well, and could even be equipped with a droppable rocket assist takeoff unit, if even more power was needed to haul the big-assed ME-321 out of rough fields. But here's the rub. Perhaps the 321 was just too big. Before the use of the Zwilling, 
it only had a one-way range of about 250 miles, which just wasn't enough. Besides, it couldn't even be maneuvered on the ground by hand without specialized vehicles, which made it hazardous in landing zones. Also, it was slow, lumbering, and vulnerable, and in a crash, you'd potentially lose everybody on board, which did happen in 1941. This accident led to the loss of the glider, the three tow planes, and all 129 occupants of the four aircraft. So the poor designers went back to work and tried adding four French Gnome engines to a strengthened ME321 wing, and they called it the ME323. They used the French engines to try not to add any more burden to the already stressed out German aircraft engine situation. Heading more towards being an actual cargo plane rather than a glider, it had a fixed undercarriage, fitted with four small wheels at the front of the aircraft and six larger wheels in two lines of three at each side of the back of the fuselage. This weird hybrid was still not able to get into the air by itself when fully loaded, and it still needed an HE-111 Zwilling or Troika Schlepp formation to get airborne, whereby afterwards it could carry on by itself. It could return empty without help, though. Finally, they added another two engines to the 323, giving a total of six, and this plane could take off and fly by itself, although rocket assist takeoff was sometimes still used for extra heavy loads. Almost 200 ME-323s were built, and although they were very vulnerable, they gave good service. But by this time, they were just a powered cargo plane, and so they pass out of the scope of this narrative. One German glider operation that has to be mentioned was the rescue of Benito Mussolini from where he was being held custody in the Hotel Campo Imperatore, which was built on a remote and easily defendable mountain plateau 6,000 feet above sea level, with the only access to the hotel being a funicular cable car. 200 heavily armed carabinieri Guards were there to prevent the Duce from going anywhere. Sounds like Mission Impossible, right? But it seems no one considered the sky, which was totally open to attack. On the 12th of September, 1943, at 14.05, 10 DFS-230 gliders, each carrying nine special SS troopers and a pilot, landed in front of the hotel. Five minutes before that, other German airborne forces had captured the bottom station of the funicular and had cut the phone lines. Ten minutes after the landing, the glider troops had overwhelmed the 200 guards without a single shot being fired. As well, they had taken and destroyed the hotel's radio. Soon after that, a Fiesler FI-156 short takeoff and landing plane flew in, landed, and whisked out Mussolini. After a couple of stops and hops, the next day he was in a meeting with Hitler at the Wolf's Lair. This is a perfect example of what the DFS-230 was designed and built to do. The last German glider that I'm going to talk about is the Blom & Voss BV-40. 
Now, already to the modern ear, the idea of a combat glider already sounds pretty oxymoronic. I mean, how can this unpowered thing survive in a combat environment? But how about a fighter glider? That's what the Blomman Voss BV-40 was. It was one of the designs born of desperation to try to deal with the Allied bomber offensive. And it's not as crazy as it might sound. It was tiny. You've got to check out the pic on the Facebook page. But if you can't right now, I'll try to describe it the best that I can. It looks like a toy, especially with people standing around it to give it scale. The only thing that's taller on it than a man is the tail fin, and only barely. The aircraft was 18 feet long, and although it had a 25-foot wingspan, each wing looks too small for a man to actually lie on. It was too small to sit in, so the pilot would have to lie prone, which also had the advantage of making a very, very small cross-section target for the Allied bomber gunners to aim at. If they did manage to hit it, the cockpit was armored with 20 millimeters of steel plate and 120 millimeters, that's five inches, of armored glass on the windscreen. It had two 30 millimeter cannon mounted in the wing roots. Now the plan was for a Messerschmitt BF 109 or 110 to tow it to an altitude above the Allied bomber's combat box where it would be released for its attack. At this point, the tow plane, while being a fighter, could do its own attack too. Once dropped, the BV-40 would dive down at a sharp angle and high speed of almost 300 miles per hour towards the enemy bomber fleet. It would fire its weapons and then glide back for a landing. They built seven prototypes and flew five of them before the idea was abandoned. And that, folks, wraps up this episode on German gliders. Next time we'll see what the Brits were up to.